0: Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah, in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel,
1: "'Why have you
0: come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants.' But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of a path of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his, old, of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, "'Fighting with the Philistines. "'And David rose early in the morning "'and left the sheep with a keeper "'and took the provisions and went, "'as Jesse had commanded him. "'And he came to the encampment "'as the host was going out to the battle line, "'shouting the war cry. "'And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, "'army against army. "'And David left the things in charge "'of the keeper of the baggage "'and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. "'As he talked with them, Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another, and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him for you are but a youth and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and struck him, and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion, and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved in forward and came nearer to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword. "...and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem." And he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from, striking, from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite.
1: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word and all that it means. I pray that you would renew this text in front of us, give us fresh eyes to see it, Apply it to our lives by your Spirit's work in our heart. You know every situation in this room. You know every emotion coming into this text. You know all the familiarity. You know those that are completely new to this story. You know every feeling of everything that's happened before this service and what will come after. My prayer is only that you, through your word, speak to all of us. Speak through and in place of me to the hearts of your people. And I pray that any in here who find themselves right now as enemies of the cross of Christ would be humbled and convicted that you would bring them to repentance. Through the preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. David and Goliath may be the most familiar story in the Old Testament to our culture. If you're a, if you're a fan of sports of any kind, particularly college basketball, any kind of tournament or championship game or any event, sporting event of any kind that comes about, you have the comparison of that matchup to David versus Goliath. Right? Anytime somebody is outmatched, outclassed, when there's a team or a person of relative insignificance that has much less weaponry and much less whatever, competes against some sort of juggernaut that has all of the money and the clout and the power and the prestige. When the odds seem to be completely against the little guy, when everything seems impossible, the announcer goes, well, this truly is David versus Goliath. But maybe our familiarity with this story has caused us to miss the actual point of the story in the text of 1 Samuel. Sermons on this passage tend to focus many times on this passage as an allegory for the Christian life. You may have heard something like this. David comes to represent the Christian. Goliath comes to represent the Christian's obstacles in life. The five smooth stones come to represent things like faith and obedience and service and prayer and the Holy Spirit. All the tools that a Christian might need to conquer his or her biggest obstacles. The sermon title might even be something like, Dare to be a David. I've heard these kinds of takes on this passage before. And the point that is often preached from this text is that, like David, you too can tackle the obstacles in your life if you have a faith similar to that of David's. We even make movies about this kind of theme from this chapter Things called Facing the Giants. It's a football movie, of all things. But when we pay careful attention to the story itself, what we walk away with is a message that's somewhat different than that. It turns out, this passage is not really making a point about you, believe it or not. It's actually making a point about the work that God accomplishes for His name, and through His King, and then about what happens to those who would set themselves up as enemies of God and His King and His kingdom when they attempt to defy them. We're going to look at three phases of this battle with the Philistines that ultimately ends with Israel's victory. The first thing that we find out is, as we open this story is that God's people are filled with fear. God's people are filled with fear. The Philistines, as Jeremy read, I made them read it because they get all the complicated names and everything, you know. And I don't have to read it, I'm just kidding. The Philistines are encamped at Ephesdamim, which of course we all know where that is. And the Israelites are gathered in, uh, around an area near the Valley of Elah, a place you can actually go visit today and see this valley. And it's not far from each other. They can yell across this valley and be heard. Uh, so it, Goliath would easily be seen in the Valley of Elah as he stands down there at the base. And, of course, the Philistines have this champion. His name is, is Goliath. And, look, the stats of this guy are impressive. All right, and we've probably been through the stats a million times, but the ESV has it told to us that he was six cubits, which would be something around nine feet tall. It's about 18 inches, and you do the math, and it comes out to about nine feet tall. But it says six cubits and a span, and a span, I think, is just saying, and some change. All right, so not quite round to nine foot, but bigger than that. And look at what he has. He had armor from head to toe. He had helm, a helmet. He had a coat, a chainmail coat. A leg armor. A javelin. And, and along with that, a shield that was carried by a shield bearer that was in front of him. His coat, if you do the math and the breakdown and the calculations, is somewhere near 100 pounds in weight, which probably someone only that size could actually carry. His spear... The, the head of his spear was something around 14 pounds. And I don't know how big a weaver's beam is, but I, I'm betting it's not the size of a toothpick. All right, it's probably pretty large. Now remember the themes that we've seen in First Samuel up to this point. And what we've found out already is that one theme that's been focused on is the way humans tend to see things through the eyes of the flesh. Then when they look at things, when we look at things, we tend to take them at face value. And we tend not to be able to see what God is doing behind the scenes of things. That's that's been a running theme throughout the book up to this point. We read the situation as the facts present themselves rather than what God might be doing on the back end. So when they see this man who is... Nine and some change feet tall, who has a coat of mail that is thicker than my entire body, and it's solid and a hundred pounds. I mean, this guy is meant to be intimidating, and the eyes of the flesh from the soldiers that look upon this man are terrified. What else is in their army? I mean, good grief. If this guy is their representative, that's precisely what we see. The people are intimidated. Goliath stands on the battlefield and he proposes this challenge to all the ranks of Israel. Look what he says in verse 8. Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be uh, a servant of us. Now, he's not only coming out to battle in the field to challenge them to a duel, but look at what he says in verse 10. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Now, this is an important phrase in this passage since Goliath's defiance of the army of Israel is the very reason David is going to go out onto the battlefield. David is actually going to say that word, defy, a billion times in this passage, and you've got to pay attention to it. It's the reason he's coming out on the battlefield is precisely because this man that stands before me is defying the armies of the Lord. And that's why David comes out to fight him. Not merely is he challenging the army of Israel... But David's going to inform him that he is defying the armies of the living God. It's actually God himself that you're defying. But nevertheless, the rest of Israel is terrified. And what does their fear actually tell us? Their fear tells us that the eyes through which they're looking at this battle that's in front of them is not the eyes of faith, but the eyes of the flesh. The eyes of faith would see all the way back in the book of Joshua... That one man will drive out a thousand. You show up on the battlefield and I'll take care of it. But the eyes of the flesh see a man who's nine feet and some change and is terrified. Now we actually have examples in just the recent texts that we've read over the last few weeks of what the eyes of faith actually look like. So just remember this with me. Over the last few chapters, or you can even probably flip back there, you'll remember in chapter 11, there is the spirit that rushes upon Saul when he becomes a prophet and a king when uh, Samuel anoints him. The spirit rushes upon Saul and he unites the armies of Israel and leads them to attack the Ammonites and conquers them there in chapter 11. You may remember just two chapters later, his son Jonathan who has a smaller platoon than his dad. He has 1,000 and his dad has 2,000. He takes that smaller platoon and he goes to pick a fight with the Philistines in chapter 13. And you're like, Jonathan, what are you doing? Well, we find out even, a couple, even another chapter later, he take, Jonathan takes just his armor bearer and they go up to that plateau and they go and they whip up on a Philistine outpost just him and his armor bearer. And you remember what Jonathan says there in chapter 14 to his armor bearer? He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord by saving, from saving by many or by few. Remember, that is the eyes of faith. Those are spiritual eyes looking on a battle. This isn't a battle between me and Philistines. This is a battle between the Lord and some Philistines. And who knows? Maybe the Lord will give them into our hands. But we also see the eyes of the flesh come up in several instances. In chapter 13, when Saul sees his army is disappearing before him, the Philistines are really ticked about what Jonathan has done, and and they come out with impressive force. And all the children of Israel are running, and some of them are running out of the promised land. And Saul is supposed to wait and on Samuel, and he's going, I'm running out of patience, I'm running out of time, all my people are leaving, and I've got to do something, and so what does he do? Well, he offers a false sacrifice and disobeys the Lord. And remember in 14, where Saul responds to the military's struggles by making them fast and then almost killing his son? And he thinks that maybe by doing so, he'll conjure up the Lord's favor on his behalf. Let's let's do a fast, and maybe the Lord will give them into our hands quicker. Or what about in chapter 15, when he's told to destroy everything, but instead, it seems better to his eyes to keep the good stuff for him and for his military and destroy only the bad, and he blatantly disobeys God. But what about in the last chapter? When even Samuel himself goes into the land of Bethlehem to anoint David as king, though he doesn't know it's David, he meets Jesse and he meets Jesse's sons and he sees the oldest and the biggest and the strongest of his sons and he thinks to himself that these are the logical choices for the next king over Israel. And do you remember that God is the one that has to interrupt his thinking, and go, that's not spiritual eyes. That's not eyes of faith. That's not the way I view things. There is this tendency on man's part to look on the appearance of things, to look at the might and the strength and the power, and to put trust in those things, rather than to take a God's eye view that he has and see things the way he does. And that's been a bit of a theme lately, and I think we're, we're seeing the same thing here. Goliath marches out onto the field of battle with his giant armor, covering his giant body, holding his giant spear, and with his giant voice, spewing giant curses toward tiny little old Israel. And he has all of them in absolute and utter fear. But it's not just all of Israel. Look what verse 11 tells us that it was also Saul who is fearful right along with them. Well, don't worry, because David's coming to battle. Doesn't that give you so much hope and optimism? Here comes David. He's on the way. Now, if you're looking with the eyes of the flesh, this doesn't look any more promising, having David coming onto the battlefield. But we have the benefit of being the audience, so we can criticize the people in the story, you know, because we're all knowing. Um, So next, so the first thing we see is that God's people are filled with fear, but second, we see God's king is filled with faith. God's king is filled with faith. David is the youngest of Jesse's eight sons. He seems also to be the smallest of Jesse's sons. So small, in fact, is he that in the previous chapter when Samuel came out to anoint Jesse's sons, Jesse paraded all of his sons out in front of Jesse uh, out in front of Samuel and didn't even bring David to the show David is so young and so small didn't even bring him out there his three oldest brothers are in the military which may also give us a ballpark on the ages So, just think about this with me in numbers a fighting age for a man is 20 and up alright So, that may mean that David's third oldest brother was about 20. If you do the math, we can't know for sure, but if you do the math, the odds are David was shockingly young. So young that if we were to time travel back to that day, we might go, that's David? No wonder! Everybody called him a young man. David is probably shockingly young. Here, David is taking his brothers their lunches. He's basically first, you know, one thousand BC Grubhub, taking his brothers' lunches, and he hears what's going on. He sees what's going on. He hears the words of Goliath, and he sees the fear on the faces of the men of Israel. He also hears what Saul has promised the army: if there's a man willing to fight. Look at the promises. It's He'll make the man rich. He'll make the man his son-in-law by giving him his own daughter. And he'll set the father's house free. That's a, that's a heck of a promise. He'll make the man rich. He'll make the man his son-in-law by giving his daughter to him. And he'll set his father's house free. Now, we're not told exactly what it means to set the father's house free. However... We do have some clues in other things that we've found and investigated. Uh, it, It probably means something like the sons won't be obligated to fight in the military, for one, and the father's house will be exempted from taxes. Think about that. Exempt from taxes? Amen, somebody. Right? Now, what will that do if this man is free from taxes, his whole family is free from taxes, and all the men of his household are free from service in the military. That probably means if you're free from fighting in the military, male heirs are going to be a lot more likely for your family. Well, that's not important for David, is it? If you're exempt from taxes, that would also mean wealth is plentiful and preserved. Plenty of heirs, and you have plenty of money to hand down. So this is prosperity in every respect to the person who defeats Goliath. So when this young man, David, sees the threats of Goliath, how does he interpret it? Well, look at verse 26. He says, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should, what is it, defy the armies of the living God? How are we supposed to interpret David's words here? Remember, in light of the last chapter, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. It said, from that day forward. Now, that doesn't make David perfect. What it does mean is that when he gets it right, we know that it is the Spirit of God working in and through him to give him the kind of eyes he needs to properly evaluate the situation that is before him. So when he says this person has defied the living God, who is the one that's going to go out and fight this guy? Don't picture a 20-year-old kid. Picture a little teenager with a smart mouth. Smarmy, you might describe him. But what's happening here is the Spirit of God is working through him. He's giving him the eyes of faith that David has to see this battle for what it is. He's not a giant. He is an uncircumcised Philistine that is standing in front of us and is insulting God Himself. He is defying the armies of the living God. Who's going to do something about this? But look at the difference between David's words there about Goliath and his own brother's words about David. Look at verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left these sh- those few sheep in the wilderness? Very insulting right there, by the way. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Remember in the previous chapter when David was anointed, God interrupted Samuel's thoughts. And he said to Samuel, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Well, here we are one chapter later, and the oldest brother is now playing the role of the Holy Spirit and is able to somehow see inside David's chest directly at his heart. He's able to peer directly at David. He knows what's inside, and he has evaluated it, and he has said, it is evil what is in your heart. David has just said all this because he wants us to fight. He wants to come down here and pick a fight. And and sure, it's fine. We go out to the battle. He's not going to go out to the battle. You see, Eliab, the oldest brother, has no idea what is actually going on. He is claiming to see with spiritual eyes the heart of David. But in reality, he also, like everyone else in this scene, has eyes of flesh. He has no idea that his little brother at the very least ten years younger than him. He's actually intending on going out onto this battlefield and fighting Goliath himself. This is exactly what David tells Saul when Saul hears that someone, there's someone in the, in the midst of the camp that wants to go fight Goliath, and he brings David right on in, and he listens to what he has to say. And David makes his pitch standing in front of him, probably about that tall, and says, look, I'm ready to go fight this Philistine. And, and he, he says, I, I, I bet you are. <laughs> You can't fight this guy. You must be crazy, kid. But David is insistent, and he says, I have killed lions and tigers and bears. There we go. Somebody got it. I've caught them by the beard. I've ran them down. I've grabbed bears by the beard. Now, now David might be young, and he might be small, but he is no coward, I can tell you that much if he's chased down lions and bears. David's oldest brother, through his fleshly eyes, sees this evil, presumptuous little brother talking a big game, and Saul, he says, sees but a youth standing in front of him. And across the valley, he sees a guy, Saul is, he sees a guy who's been fighting since he was a youth. You can't defeat that guy. He has too much training, he has too much size, and you're just a little kid. He's been fighting since he was at least age. But David has killed lions and tigers and bears, and he's looked at uh, all of them in the face and killed them. And so he says in verse 36 this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has, what is it, defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Are you catching David's point? Are you catching what he's trying to get across to everybody he talks to? Are you seeing what he's trying to say? This person has defied the armies of the living God. And while everyone else sees a reason to be fearful, David sees a reason to trust. This Philistine has defied God and he must not be allowed to live. And through his eyes of faith, he is convinced that the Lord will deliver him from the hand of this guy. So Saul grants him permission to go into battle. And finally, we see that God's deliverance is secured by his faithful king. God's deliverance is secured by his faithful king. Remember, Goliath has a helmet, he's got a coat, he's got leg armor, and he's got a javelin. And so what does Saul see as the only way that this little boy stands a chance against this giant? Well, he's got to have armor to match. And so Saul puts his armor on him, he gives him a helmet, he gives him a coat, he gives him a sword... But the text says that David hadn't tested them. He's never used them in battle. I don't want to go out with stuff that's unfamiliar to me. So he takes them off. And instead, to match Goliath's helmet, coat, leg armor, and javelin, David takes a staff, stones, pouch, and sling. Hardly a match. Of course, Goliath laughs at the appearance of this young boy who's come out to fight him against this giant who has no doubt fought and and won many battles and could probably pick David up by the head. He curses him by the gods of the Philistines. And then David returns back the insult to Goliath with the theme of this chapter. David is going to explain exactly why this story is being told to us in verse 45. Look with me. And David said to the Philistine, You have come to me with a sword and with a spear, and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. That's a heck of a statement. First notice that David points to all the armament which Goliath comes onto the field of battle. These are the physical tools that give the giant some security. David comes, he says, "In the name of the Lord of hosts." He doesn't even count his weapons, doesn't consider. I've got a slingshot here. Don't bring a knife to a gunfight. He doesn't say any of that. That's not the reason he's out on the battlefield. He comes in the name of the Lord of hosts. David's security on the battlefield is not in his weapons. It's in his reason for being on the battlefield. I come in the name of the Lord of hosts. He's fighting because the name of the Lord is at stake. That's what's being insulted. That's what Goliath is defying. So David is telling us the main point of this battle. The very reason that this passage, this story, is told to us in this text of 1 Samuel that all the earth that includes you and me that all the earth may know that there is a god in israel and that all this assembly may know that the lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the lord's you have defied the lord david says have you gotten this point already this phrase is repeated six times in this passage from various sources mostly from David, but even Goliath says himself once, I defy the ranks of Israel. He's admitting to it. And David says, for your defiance, you will lose your head, and I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds. This is the method that God uses to remove the authority from those who would defy Him. And it communicates that the battle belongs to the Lord, the cutting off of the head. It's actually really important in the book of Samuel that you see this. You remember a few chapters ago, actually back toward the very beginning, Israel goes out to war. And they can't defeat the Philistines, and so they think to themselves, look, I've got a really good idea. Let's bring the ark out there so that we can use our gods as our force, and we can defeat the Philistines in a rout. Remember, Eli, the priest, is overseeing this whole thing, and his sons, who are corrupt, are also overseeing, and God has already promised that Eli is going to be taken down from his post precisely because he does not obey the Lord. He's wicked. He's doing wicked things, and he's allowing wicked things. Well, of course, remember that the Ark gets captured. And what happens to Eli when his authority is actually removed from him once and for all, but he falls over and he breaks his neck. Do you remember that the Philistines capture God in the Ark? We've got their God. And brings him in in the Ark as a war trophy to their God, Dagon. And he sits there in this uh, uh, room as it were, a, worship, a sanctuary to the god Dagon. And what do the Philistines come in to find? But the Dagon has fallen over. They put him back up and the next day they come in and they find him falling over again. This time his head is cut off. That whole scene communicates one simple truth. You cannot manipulate God. God fights for himself. The battle belongs to the Lord, not to you. God is the one who fights. Now David goes into battle with a guy twice his size. He slings a stone. It embeds in the giant's forehead. He falls over. The entire Philistine army flees. All of Israel suddenly gains a spine and runs after them to kill them. David takes a sword and cuts off Goliath's head and carries it around for a little while. And it communicates the same truth. All those who would defy God will come to know that the battle belongs to the Lord and he's going to cut off your head. At the end of the book, Saul also will go into battle and his head will be cut off by the Philistines. Communicating yet again the same simple truth. If you defy God, you will come to an end. Your authority will be no longer everyone will know that the battle belongs to the Lord. He's the one that fights. We've seen this statement of defiance six times now, but it's here that David gives us the fuller meaning. Your defiance of the one true and living God means that you are in line for judgment. You have mocked His armies, His people, and therefore you have mocked Him. And for that you will be brought low. Remember, this actually comes back to the same thing that we've seen since the very beginning when little Hannah prays in the second chapter in verse 9. She says, He will guard the feet of His faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horns of His anointed. It's almost like she's praying about the battle of David versus Goliath. But He does not save with sword and spear, David says. But the eyes of the flesh see David as outmatched But you understand that the eyes of the flesh matter very little when God is actually the one fighting the battle. There's a fatal flaw with the charge, Dare to be a David. The text is actually pointing us to a different conclusion. And it's this. God is the one that fights for His people. And He accomplishes their salvation Through His faithful King. God is the one that fights for His people. And He accomplishes their salvation through His faithful King. God is the one that fights for His people. And He accomplishes their salvation through His faithful King. One problem that we frequently have when reading the Old Testament is that we think people like David are merely just setting an example for us to follow. There's David. That's what he did. You try to do the same things and be like David. But in actuality, what they're teaching, about, teaching us about is our need for salvation and how God will be the one to save His people. If there's anybody that we could draw a parallel to in, in this passage that reminds us of us, it would be the, the cowardly Israel armies who are are watching and in need of salvation and who need somebody to come along and kill this giant in front of them. Or perhaps it might be the Philistine army or even Goliath himself, since we were at one time enemies of the cross of Christ. Anyone but David might be the example for us. But you see, God has provided a king to deliver His people before they ever knew their need. You remember, David was anointed last chapter. They didn't know anything about Goliath then. Brothers and sisters, this act of God's deliverance of Israel here in this battle is but a microcosm of the deliverance that he would accomplish through David's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. Great, great Goliath, believe it or not, is small potatoes compared to the enemy of sin and death that we ultimately needed deliverance from. See, David's but a shadow of of the King that God had provided to deliver His people. But you see, David's foreshadowing of Jesus here is not merely that He slayed our biggest adversary. That Jesus came to slay sin and death. That certainly is true. And like David, He did that. But David comes forward and slays Goliath. Why? What, it, what does that do for all of Israel? It is proof. It is a proving sign that He is authentically the King over Israel. And that through Him, all of Israel is going to have victory. You see, God is empowering David there on the battlefield, and he's communicating to all of Israel and all of Israel's enemies that I am bringing forward my king to bring salvation to my people, and anyone that would defy the armies of the living God or defy my king will meet their demise. So David's victory over Goliath and over his enemies is something of a necessity to validate that He has a right to the throne, you see. But now I want you to consider what Paul says in Romans 1. Romans 1, to 1-4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the Gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What validated Christ's kingship? It was His bodily resurrection. Jesus' resurrection bodily from the grave was fundamental to our faith because by it, all that he said and did was validated. Imagine if David steps onto the battlefield and says all this about God. He fights. He's going to give me into your. He's going to give you into my hand and all this. And Goliath says, yeah, "That's funny," and then just runs him through with a sword, kills him dead right there on the battlefield. What validity does David's words actually have? None. What validity does Samuel's anointing of David in the previous chapter actually have? Absolutely none. If Jesus merely dies at the cross, then we're not reading the New Testament today. We're here for a host of other reasons, but not to read the New Testament. But the documented fact of the bodily resurrection of Jesus demonstrated that he is truly the Son of God and that he rightfully rules his people. So you might say David, in foreshadowing Jesus, is daring to be a Jesus. But this is the good news for us, that Jesus' perfect life, his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection from the dead is the only righteousness you'll ever need. That's the purpose of him going onto the battlefield, of him going to the cross and dying in our stead. He gave us the righteousness, we'll, the only righteousness we'll ever need. He has taken the throne. So then you have to ask yourself, if He really does have that kind of authority, and if He rose from the dead and proves that He's got that kind of authority, then what does His declaring you righteous before God actually mean? What does it mean if Jesus, who has defeated death, says to you that your relationship with the Almighty God is restored That I have done it. That I have brought forgiveness to you. What does it mean that Jesus as King has actually done that? So brothers and sisters, we should look through the eyes of faith when we see the world around us instead of the eyes of flesh which tend toward fear. What does it mean that the same Jesus who declared you righteous before God also said that I'm coming back? That there's a resurrection for the dead. That there is life eternal on the other side of the grave. What does it actually mean for the King of all creation who rose from the dead and conquered the grave? That He says that about us. you understand when I say that? I know some can take it to mean whatever you want it to mean. If I wrote down the phrase, look through the eyes of faith instead of the eyes of fear, You could take that statement and you could slap it on a motivational poster and you could put it in any place of work anywhere and everybody in that place would go, Amen. They may be Christian or they may be otherwise, but they would almost all agree with it. Yes, look through the eyes of faith instead of the eyes of fear. It's that kind of motivational rah-rah statement, isn't it? So let me explain what I mean and make at least half of them mad. The eyes of faith recognizes Jesus' authority over heaven and earth. That's number one. When I say the eyes of faith, I mean it's eyes that recognize Jesus' authority over heaven and earth, over all things, everything that happens. Sovereign authority. The eyes of faith refuses to compromise the commands of God's Word regardless of what the consequences may bring. Regardless of what consequences may come, It refuses to compromise the commands of God's Word. Less people are agreeing with that statement now, yeah? Third, the eyes of faith does not measure success by worldly standards of money, numbers, size, and increase. Or for that matter, helmets and shields and spears and javelins and things like that. But by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. By genuine fruit of the Spirit produced in the lives of genuine believers. That means if we're actually looking at with eyes of faith at the world around us, how do we determine what success actually is? Well, it's not financial. It's certainly not power and size and increase but by genuine fruit that the Spirit is producing in and through our lives. And fourth, the eyes of faith sees temptation to sin all around and within. And rather than defying the living God, would do whatever is necessary to put it to death. Looking around you, seeing temptation to sin all around you and within you, and doing whatever is necessary to put it to death. Many less people are agreeing with that poster. Now, looking at the world with the eyes of faith. See, perhaps the message that needs to be preached in our churches is don't be Goliath. Don't be Goliath. Don't stand in defiance of God. Maybe it's because you're compromising God's commands. Perhaps you've developed such a taste for sin that it's slowly devouring you. Maybe rather than growing in genuine fruit of the Spirit, you're growing in bitterness, complaining, hostility, gossip, backbiting, lust, anger, pride, and selfishness, which is the fruit of the devil. Maybe you should consider that far from being David, you've actually become Goliath. And you stand there defying the living God. You're openly hostile to King Jesus And the result will be that you'll lose your head. Because anyone that stands in defiance of his king meets their demise. See, the good news of the gospel is that we all were once enemies of the cross of Christ. Every single one of us started off a Philistine. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were His enemies, made us alive. So what that means is don't harden your heart to the gospel. Don't harden your heart to the King. Don't defy the living God. Repent of your sin. You might not like the package that this is brought to you in. But don't defy God simply because the words you're hearing may not come to you in the package that you desire from the person that you desire it to come from. Hear what's being said. Confess your need for Jesus and repent of your sin. You cannot grow in sin and and let sin fester in your life and come to enjoy it and expect to be on God's side at the end of all things. You're standing there in defiance. Brothers and sisters, live under the ministry of King Jesus. You understand that if you see the world through the eyes of faith, then you become a very dangerous person. Now don't get me wrong. You're the best employee anyone could ever want as long as the company wants to follow the Word of God. You're the best citizen any country could ever want as long as the government wants to follow the Word of God. But do you understand, the moment that they don't, that they step outside of the lines of the Word of God, you become an incredibly dangerous enemy to them. Because under the ministry of King Jesus, you no longer love your own life, even if it means your death. Well, if they can't hold your life over you, what can they hold over you? You love not your own job, even unto termination. Well, now you're very dangerous because even your job holds no influence over your values. They don't change. You love not your own money, even unto poverty. Well, what can anybody hold over you if it's not financial influence? See, following in David's footsteps... Following in Jesus' footsteps as his disciple means truly walking by the Spirit. So when the rubber meets the road, can you actually stand there and call yourself a disciple of the resurrected Christ? Let's be honest. When the rubber meets the road, are you up for it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, all that it means We're grateful for this season where you bring your incarnation into sharp focus for us. Where we see with new eyes what it means for Christ to take on flesh and dwell among us. For his disciples to behold his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For him to then die for us. To take our sin. I pray that we would come to trust it. For anyone in this room that stands right now as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Be it hostility, or anger, or pride, or lust, or any host of sins that may ensnare them right at this very moment. I pray that they would confess them. Lord, only you can do that through your spirit. I pray that you would give us all eyes of faith to see. In Jesus' name, amen.